It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Welcome to Daily Thunder. This is the Monday edition. We are in uh, part 14. It seems like the number gets bigger uh, every day, doesn't it? Uh, part 14 of our spiritual lessons from World War II. And I've really, really enjoyed this series. Uh, so this one is, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, challenge for me giving this particular message because I wish I had another week on this message. The thoughts I have for this are so um, manifold and yet I'm limited. I just ran out of time, if you could say it that way. I had to abandon a uh, project and just go for it. Uh, and that's one of the challenges I have with uh, this World War II series is it's almost like my hunger and my desire to cultivate some of this stuff is greater than the amount of time I have. But this is about leadership. And very specifically, it'd be a fascinating study. It'll be like a case study in Winston Churchill and leadership. But my desire isn't to focus on a man. Technically, Winston Churchill is a very flawed man, and if we were to break him down in a, in a biographical sense, I could also do a series on what we don't want to be like in Winston Churchill, okay? So it's not that I want to celebrate him to a level of even uh, uh, saintliness, uh, you know, as, we, as the classic Catholic uh, mentality would be, is like Saint Winston. I don't even want to try and go in that direction. However, he's going to model something and that is leadership in a time of difficulty, in a time of crisis that is highly irregular in this world that I think it would do all of us good to grab a hold of it. And what I'm going to draw out, I'm also going to show you in the life of Christ. In other words, Christ is going to be a leader in the darkest, most dangerous time of human history. He is going to come in and lead a people, lead captivity captive. He is going to save and rescue a people from a surrounding darkness. Very similar, of course, Jesus' rescue is far superior <laughs> to that of Winston Churchill, but what Winston Churchill is going to do is impossible. It is the worst assignment a leader could ever get. Now, if you go back, what, two Sundays ago, and what is wanted as a man was my message, you're gonna notice some parallels because it's the same, same picture, uh, is there's a dark time and there's a need for someone to rise up. But for many of us in here, now some of you would say I'm not called to leadership, and you know, I get what you probably mean by that. You mean I, I don't really feel like I'm called to just lead a ministry, start a ministry. You are called to leadership, every single one, but it depends on how you define it. In other words, leadership, if you take a more simple understanding of it, it is that which brings influence on the world around you. Okay? It could be influence upon a family. It could be influence upon a workplace. It could be influence upon a government, yes. It could be influence upon a ministry, a church. But you're all called to influence, to pass along a baton, to pass along a, a heritage of truth to the world around you. You're not called to just stand alone and die alone. You're, you're called to stand, and even if you stand alone, but to influence and bring others with you. You're called to change the world in which you live and we're all called to do it differently. However, there's something about this that I think all of us can take, and I want this to be inspiring. The reason I say this is sort of an abandoned project is because there's so much more. There's so much more scripture I wanted to sort of pack around this. It's already long, 
So I'm just going to go through it, and hopefully it'll uh, come together, because I, I didn't even get to do a final edit on it, which is highly irregular for me. So I may go through this like, oh, that's one of my note uh, slides that uh, I was supposed to have deleted, Skip. That, that actually could happen in this particular one. Leading in the dark. It's hard to lead in the light. <laughs> when everything is good, it's hard to be a leader. Leading when all goes dark. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard the story of me speaking in Go the Gonzaga Arena uh, and where they play their basketball games for Gonzaga University. I was uh, speaking, and there was a big uh, music group at the time, so it was a big event. And I don't, I w I don't want to say that everyone came to hear Eric and Leslie. Okay, Very likely they came to hear the... Uh, the big music event, and then they got stuck with us, okay? That's, that's very likely more true, right? But I was in the, it was about five to 7,000, whatever it fits, it was packed in there, okay? And so I'm up on the stage, and in an arena, it's an interesting setup, you know, because it's different than a lot of church uh, setups, but it's all internal, there's no, there's no windows. And the power goes out, and it was dark, okay? But what's weird is the microphone still worked. So I can't explain how that worked, but the microphone speaker system worked, but all the lights went out. So it was pitch black, and there's like five to 7,000 people packed into this building, and I have a live mic. And I still look back at that moment as being one of the most unique tests of my manhood that I've gone through, because it was, people were scared, like what's you know I had no explanation I couldn't talk with anyone of what was going on and I have a live mic and I need to lead five to seven thousand people through the dark okay and it actually turned into a humorous time where we were laughing I mean just uproarious laughter in the pitch black one of the most unique experiences in my life and so there is something about this that when when the difficulties come or the lights go out that's actually our stage as Christians, if I could say it this way, because most people are going to panic, but a Christian doesn't. Most people are going to line up at the gas station to get their security and to fill up some tank that they have because no one knows what's happening, but everyone else is in line, and so they start to follow. The, the, the people that are panicking become the leaders until a Christian rises up and begins to show a different pattern, and so in in a crisis, one of the things that I've seen is it's actually something that we as Christians delight in. Now, it's not that we delight in the fact that there's a crisis. We delight in the fact that crisis can be leveraged for the kingdom of heaven because that's our stage. That's when we can influence almost at a greater degree than any other time. And I have all sorts of stories in my life of these moments where I sort of get a twinkle in my eye because everyone else is starting to panic and it's like, this is great. I mean, I get excited because this is when I can influence almost at a greater degree. Leading in the dark. So there's one of my favorite pictures of Winston Churchill. Uh, he was called the old bulldog. He was called uh, the old lion. There's various nicknames for him. The old bulldog, I think that fits. Doesn't he even sort of look like an old bulldog there? <laughs> so you can sort of see where, the, but that fits, I mean, bulldog. I mean, that's, if bulldog looks like it's about ready to fall asleep, but it's, you know, it's one tough character. A bulldog around the ankle is, you know, it has a set jaw and it's not letting go. And that's very similar to Winston Churchill. So it's interesting because the Jews have a very, very high opinion of Winston Churchill. Uh, and that is because he stood for them in the darkest hour. When their people were being ravaged and ransacked and killed in concentration camps, 
they felt like there was one man on earth that would not just subside. Every other nation, every single one. And when France fell, they capitulated. They wanted an armistice. It's like, we'll leave you alone. And then even in France, they started to deal with the Jews in France. And so right across the English Channel is one man who says, you know, over my dead body. And so the Jews, even to this day, have such a high regard for Winston Churchill because he was sort of like last man standing, the, the advocate that they would say God assigned. Nachmanides, I'm actually not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, but Nachmanides, uh, is, who's a 13th century rabbi, a Jewish man, says this, precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. And so they, the Jews took Nachmanides' quote and attributed it to Winston Churchill. And they said, as Hitler was raised up by the powers of darkness, so God raised up Winston Churchill for this dark hour to be our protector. So it's just interesting to think about it from even the mindset of the Jews. So May 10th, 1940. Now, for those of you that have gone through this, which is most of you in this room, you should be familiar with the date, May 10th, 1940. Now, this is, I could pop quiz you on this and say, so what happened on May 10th, 1940? Well, a lot happened. So this is the invasion of Holland, Belgium, and France uh, of the Germans, but it's also when Neville Chamberlain is stepping down and the king is literally appointing uh, Winston Churchill as prime minister. It is a massive day in history. I mean, so much is happening at this exact time. And what Winston Churchill is inheriting is what we could call the unfair challenge. It's just inappropriate to say, you must do this, and if you don't, we'll deem you a failure. But it's, it's like the impossible obstacle course. No human can actually pull that off. What he inherited, no leader would ever want. And it's strange, but it almost seems like Winston Churchill wants it. It's like he was prepared for this exact challenge to smile at it. Where most of us, if we were to look at it, because I'm going to go through it in just a second. I'll give you 10 points of impossibility. So the impossible leadership position that Winston Churchill was thrust into. So I'm going to go through 10, I think it's 10, 10 leadership challenges. Leadership challenge number one, the British people were fearful. Uh, do you blame them? I mean, Nazi Germany cannot be stopped. Everything they have gone against has just collapsed like a house of cards. And guess who's uh, breathing uh, invectives on the other side of the English Channel staring their way? Okay, th this is, I, it makes total sense that the British people would be fearful. Leadership challenge number two, the British government was divided. Now, I've gone through this in previous episodes, but the British government was divided sharply, which is why Neville Chamberlain is driven out. But there is such faction in the British government that it would seem that no prime minister that comes in is going to be able to survive long because it is so divided. It's like a civil war uh, in Great Britain right now. Leadership challenge number three, the British weren't sure that this war could be won. So they're fearful, but they also don't have the confidence that even if they had strong leadership, that they could win this thing because they don't have the military armaments in place. They aren't prepared for this. And their allies are going down and America's not standing with them. They're all alone. They don't have the confidence that they could win. Leadership challenge number four, 70% of the British armed forces were currently surrounded in France and appeared to be lost. So you just use your reasoning on this. You have 70% of your soldiers 
that are actually over in France and currently surrounded right as this is happening. So they're in a, in a situation where Winston Churchill is stepping in and he might in the very first couple days of his new administration, his new government, lose 70% of his military strength, his fighting men. Now, I don't know how you would feel if you inherited such a situation, but whoever is in charge when that happens looks like it's their fault. It's like, hey, Winston Churchill, on your watch, you lost 70% of our military in the first few days of your, your ministry. I was like, yeah, that wouldn't look good on your resume, would it? This is what he's inheriting. Leadership challenge number five, the French were folding and fast. Now, why does that matter? Well, because the French were their one ally. Okay, you don't have a lot of allies. Everyone else is playing neutral. They're like, hey, we're not in this. We're not in this. And by the way, all the neutral countries keep getting taken by Hitler, too. It doesn't matter if you're neutral. The only one was like Switzerland. I don't know why Hitler avoided Switzerland, but he seemed to honor that one. But literally all are just folding up, including one of the strongest military forces in the world, which is France, is collapsing right across the English Channel. That's not encouraging, by the way. Leadership challenge number six, public opinion in the, United, in the United States was decidedly against participating in this unwinnable war. So uh, I forgot what his name was, but it's one of the Kennedys uh, that actually came over as sort of a foreign ambassador and met with the, the new forming governments with Winston Churchill and goes back and literally tells privately to uh, President Roosevelt, they're not going to last. It's, it's an unwinnable war, and if you get involved, President, if we get involved with our resources, it's just a waste. So that was the council right at the beginning of Winston Churchill's government is the council that is coming back to Franklin Roosevelt is don't help Great Britain. Oh, that's helpful. That's, that's, that's a great start. Leadership challenge number seven. Great Britain, Britain didn't have enough money to build a military strong enough to combat this evil. They literally didn't have it. They were the strongest financial center in the world going into World War I. World War I decimated their finances. And so now they're just trying to pick up pieces, let alone go into a full-out war where they're the only nation supplying that which is needed to stop this behemoth. And so it's just unwise. It, it, there's no conceivable way that you can do it, even financially. Leadership challenge number eight, Italy... Okay, which was their ally in World War I, is waffling. And it's seen an opportunity that, as they would say privately, this is what is going to come out later, uh, that they are going to say this is an opportunity that comes once every 5,000 years to actually gain the upper hand on France and Great Britain. I mean, 5,000 years, that's a, that's a pretty long period of time, right? But in other words, it's like in the history of the world, this is about the best opportunity that Italy has to claim territory. Because they're two strongest, they're allies, Great Britain and France, that's some good territory. And so Italy licks its chops and decides to throw in its agreement with Hitler instead. And so this is what is happening right when Winston Churchill is taking power. So, uh, so Italy is seeing an opportunity that comes, once, comes every 5,000 years to gain the upper hand on France and Great Britain. They are no longer an ally. Leadership challenge number nine, Joseph Stalin, who's the uh, leader, the dictator over Soviet, the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, is no longer willing to work with Great Britain. And that's a whole story in of itself that I haven't gone into, but Neville Chamberlain is going to give the stiff arm 
to Joseph Stalin, which you can understand why. I mean, that's why I feel a little like Neville Chamberlain every time I study. It's like, I don't like communism either. And so you can imagine when Joseph Stalin said, hey, let's work together to bring down Hitler, Neville Chamberlain's like, no way am I working with you. And as a, as a result, Joseph Stalin is going to work with Hitler. And so as a result, everything's just going south here. I mean, you have Soviet Russia that is supplying arms to Hitler now. Okay, so I don't, how are you doing if you're Winston Churchill? I, I don't know if you're feeling it yet, but I mean, we've just gone through nine, and nine, we could have been fine at one and felt like this was impossible, but I've added nine so far. So it says, Joseph Stalin is no longer willing to work with Great Britain. Instead, he's going to supply Hitler with his strength. And then leadership challenge number 10, Japan is licking their chops and picking the right time to join this war and take their share of the spoils. So Japan isn't in it yet, but they will be, as all of us know. And what are they doing? They're biding their time. Winston Churchill feels it. And that's all of Asia that is vulnerable because he doesn't have the ability to even stop what's going on in Europe, let alone fight battles over in Asia, which means Japan is going to have a free reign over there to do whatever they want and just take territory. And so could you imagine what this would feel like if you're the only nation on earth that is willing to stand because America is unwilling to stand. And it makes you know, us look sort of bad as we're starting out this story. You know, us is, at least we know we're going to get into the story and it's going to you know, be a decided thing. And most of us know the end of World War II. But right now at this exact moment, the lights are turned out. And it's looking very, very bad. Leading the, in the dark, the Churchill model. So Churchill didn't write a book called you know, Leading in the Dark and Here's My Model of Leadership. So this is my observations. I've, I've studied Churchill you know, quite extensively and I know that there's a lot of negative things written about him too and I know that as we've said in the past, he drank a lot of brandy and smoked a lot of cigars and uh, you know, it's not necessarily qualities that I desire to pass along to you. And so I, with reservation, I make this man a model. At the same time, everyone that I could make a model in World War II is going to have their flaws. What we're seeing is decision-making in the midst of difficulty. And uh, it's, it's very interesting how this man was prepared for this. Five strange things that were built into this man before he arrived at this dire stretch. He was ready. That's what's interesting. He was ready to do this. Now, when you think about how God wants to position you in your life, are you going to be readied for the challenges ahead? Many of us just don't want there to be challenges ahead. So we want to stick our head in the sand and say, no challenges, no challenges. There will never be challenges. Instead of recognizing that you are engaged in a hostility that will last until your dying breath, okay? Unless Christ comes uh, while you are still alive. Praise God, that would be wonderful. But you are engaged in something that will be hostile for your life. So therefore, you need to recognize that God is going to utilize you to take down enemy strongholds. He is going to utilize you to shine a bright light in a dark world, which is going to make you a target. And so you just need to recognize that there is something that you are being prepared for. You need to make a decision on if you want to be prepared for it or not. Are you going to be in agreement with God's training mechanisms? Because God will train you. And I mean, even things like getting up in the morning and what time you get up in the morning is one of the most important training for your soul because you're making a decision between flesh and spirit all day long. And when you start making decisions for the spirit instead of the flesh, it's incredible how it strengthens you for the more difficult moments. Have you ever heard that uh, it's like a 
Native American, I want to say proverb, but it's like that Indian chief that's smoking his peace pipe. That's at least what I picture. And uh, he has two enormous dogs next to him. Like one is a Great Dane and one is a wolf. And uh, you know how I always say there are always twos. And so some other uh, Indian comes up and says, when they fight, which one wins? You know, and the old man puffs his pipe and maybe lets out a few, uh, what do you call the smoke rings? And they go flying off. And then he says very wisely, the one I feed. And there you go. You have a battle within. You have flesh and spirit. Which one wins when they fight? The one you feed. And if you feed the Holy Spirit, the spirit life within you, the truth, you're going to find that it will have the upper hand in your life to win the battles. If you starve it and feed the flesh, you're going to notice that the flesh will suddenly grow very strong. So he was a readied man. It's interesting, but he was what we could call a Jewish sympathizer, which makes him sound weak, doesn't it? He always sympathizes with the Jews. It's interesting how he was readied for this. So uh, Walking with Destinies, the, the famous book by this, this author, Andrew Roberts, Randolph Churchill, Winston's father. So uh, Winston had a son named Randolph, and he had a father named Randolph, to not confuse you. Uh, so Randolph Churchill had many Jewish friends. And upon the untimely early death of his father, these same Jewish friends had looked after young Winston. And when he began his first parliamentary position, he started in Manchester, which consisted of a large Jewish population. So what you have is a man who was cared for from a young age by Jews. Winston Churchill just happens to have a soft spot for Jews. Isn't that just interesting how he was readied for such a time where he sees atrocities happening to Jews and where most people might not even care because, hey, you know, maybe they deserve it. Because a lot of, there was a lot of wealthy Jews. It's like, hey, you know what? That gives more room for the little guy is how a lot of people could say it. Instead, Winston Churchill has a soft spot. He's like, why are you doing that? What's, what's going on over here? That, that's not the right way to treat the Jews. And then he, even his first parliamentary position is in Manchester, which consisted of a large Jewish population. Isn't that just fascinating to see how he was readied for this? So this is back in 1932. Remember, uh, 1940 is when he's going to become prime minister. So this is eight years before that. At the Regina Hotel in the summer of 1932, a gentleman introduced himself to some of my party. He was Herr Hofstengel <laughs> and spoke a great deal about the Fuhrer, with whom he appeared to be intimate. As he seemed to be a lively and talkative fellow, speaking excellent English, I asked him to dine. He gave a most interesting account of Hitler's activities and outlook. He spoke as one under the spell. He had probably been told to get in touch with me. He was evidently most anxious to please. After dinner, he went to the piano and played and sang many tunes and songs in such remarkable style that we all enjoyed ourselves immensely. He seemed to know all the English tunes that I liked. He was a great entertainer and at that time, as is known, a favorite of the Fuhrer. He said I ought to meet him and that nothing would be easier to arrange. Herr Hitler came every day to the hotel about five o'clock and would be very glad indeed to see me. I had no national prejudices against Hitler at this time. I knew little of his doctrine or record and nothing of his character. I admire men who stand up for their country in defeat, even though I'm on the other side. He had a perfect right to be patriotic, a patriotic German if he chose. I always wanted England, Germany, and France to be friends. However, in the course of conversation with Hofstangel, Hofstangel, Hanfstangel, well, that's a hard name for me to read, I happened to say, why is your chief so violent against, about the Jews? 
I can quite understand being angry with Jews who have done wrong or are against the country, and I understand resisting them if they try to monopolize power in any walk of life. But what is the sense of being against a man simply because of his birth? How can any man help how he is born? There should be a quotation mark there. He must have repeated this to Hitler because about noon the next day he came around with a rather serious air and said that the appointment he had made with me to meet with Hitler could not take place as the Fuhrer would not be coming to the hotel that afternoon. This was the last I saw of Putzi, for such was his pet name, although we stayed several more days at the hotel. Thus Hitler lost his only chance of meeting me. Later on, when he was all-powerful, I was to receive several invitations from him, but by that time a lot had happened, and I excused myself. So he was also, remember, these are things that made him ready for that. He was the man willing to stand by himself. The fact that he had spent, oh, about 11 years in the wilderness of politics and being willing to just say, here's what I believe, whether you like it or not, and he was basically in exile. He was still in parliament, but he was, uh, he was a member of parliament without power and authority over any department. And so the fact that he had been a wilderness politician for so long is exactly what Great Britain needed in this time. They needed someone who didn't just share party politic views, but someone who knew his own mind and knew what needed to be done. Number three, the man who, learned, who, who never learned how to give up. Most of us from a young age learn to give up. It's like something's difficult, and so we just throw our hands up in the air. But what would happen if you actually practiced never giving up? It's like, well, that's not working. Why don't you give up? No, I will not give up. I don't know how to give up. <laughs> well, that's, Winston Churchill did not know how to give up. He was dogged, so the dogged man of principle. This man believed that if it was right, it should be done, and I don't care what the consequences are. Well, you do know that that would get us into war, Winston. If it gets us into war, it gets us into war. But this is what needs to be done. This is what is right. And so as a result, he was readied for this, even though he wasn't desired in Great Britain before this. When it came time to needing a man who would never give up, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard uh, his most famous speech, uh, never give up, never give up, never give up, never give up. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's Winston Churchill. And... Uh, it was, I think, one of the shortest speeches on record, and he received a standing ovation for it. Number four, the man who had already lost everything. You see, when you're a leader in Christianity, it really helps if you've already lost everything. If you have a lot to lose, you can be played. But if you've already lost everything, you, it's hard for the enemy to hold things over you. And so, for instance, back in World War I, he was the head of the admiralty, which is over the Navy, and he had been, he had masterminded an attack in Gallipoli. It's, a, it's actually a brilliant campaign, turned into an absolute disaster. And because of it, he is going to lose his reputation. He's going to lose his career in, uh, in the military, and he's going to basically be the wilderness man. Uh, and so he's going to lose everything. He, in, in fact, in his mind, he'll never probably get a key position in government again because of Gallipoli in World War I. So as a result, he'd already lost it. So when you've already lost it, it's easy to hold it loosely because you already know what it's like to lose it. And so in this position, we suddenly have a man who is readied and who is already willing to go the distance and do what he knows is right and not what everyone around him thinks is right. And then he's willing to lose everything because he's already lost everything. How bad can it get? He already had Gallipoli. 
So, hey, you know, if, if he gives his best and it ends, his best ends up failing, well, you know, I've already gone through that. I know what that's like. And finally, number five, the man who didn't stand upon ceremony. It wasn't too, he wasn't too good for hard labor. It's interesting, but there is certain behavior of the upper crust of Great Britain where there's, they don't come al- amongst commoners, uh, okay? There's a certain separation, like a caste, that is created in the elite and then the lower classes. And what you're going to see Winston Churchill do is violate that. He is going to go out amongst the people. He's going to dig in the rubble during the blitz. He's going to remove people from the rubble, hold them close, get their muck, their blood on his clothes. That's not appropriate. Yeah, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what he's supposed to do. He's going to do what Winston Churchill does. And that's what's so interesting about it. This is exactly what is needed in this time. You know, there are certain things all throughout history where there's people you are not supposed to touch. And in other countries, you know, if you go to certain countries, like India, for instance, even the Christians have a difficult time. They still feel caste system. And so as a result, they can be very harsh on certain people of of, of castes, even though they're Christians. It's like it's a blind spot. And in every culture, there are blind spots that we can have of people that we're not supposed to touch. And I'd say for us as Christians, one of the biggest things that we struggle with is LGBTQ, where it's like, yeah, we're not supposed to touch them. We're not supposed to have anything to do with them, lest their stink get on us. It's a very interesting phenomenon that I've watched in my lifetime, where there's actually an animosity instead of a love. It's like, wait a minute, I thought we were Christians. It doesn't mean we behave like them, but they're, they're people that Jesus died for, that are lost. Isn't that like our prime target? You follow me? And so we can get this separation, this segregation, and when someone amongst us starts humbling themselves and removing them from the rubble, we almost feel like, hey, you're not supposed to do that. That's dangerous over there. That's what they were doing to Winston Churchill. Sir, 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 you, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. Watch me. This is how Winston Churchill handled it. He was given a, a bodyguard, Inspector Thompson, <laughs> Inspector Thompson has a journal. He writes about Winston Churchill. It's very fascinating because this guy could not contain Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was supposed to sleep in the basement that they created, a, a bomb shelter, for the prime minister, right, that is being bombed at night. And Winston Churchill, and even his wife, implores him, Winston, please, for me, will you, will you sleep in this bed tonight? Will you, I forgot how she said it. Will you, will you go down to your room and sleep down there? And so he says, yes, I will, dear. And so he goes down, and so his inspector is watching to make sure he does. He says, I'm doing what my wife asked. And he goes in and gets in his bed clothes. And he was like one of those nightgown things. And then gets in his bed, lays there for a few seconds, and then gets up and goes upstairs. And he says, I can't sleep down here, but I did what my wife asked. I got in bed, and I slept a little, and so now I'm going where I can really sleep. And he goes up into danger zone. In fact, when the bombs were, were being dropped, he'd go up on the roof sometimes and watch. This is our prime minister here. (laughs) This is not good. But Winston Churchill had such a confidence that he was God's man for the hour. What depth of Christianity he had, I can't speak to. But he believed that providence had brought him to this point and that God would preserve him even, even in his stupidity. I mean, there's some incredible stories. I mean, literally there was one time where a bomb, he, he, he was in a dinner party at his house, uh, and uh, the, uh, the work crew or the kitchen staff was in the kitchen and he 
suddenly stood up, walked into the kitchen and says, I need you guys to get out of the kitchen. And he just felt he needed to do that. Seconds later, a bomb hit and it would have killed all the kitchen staff. And they're like, how did you know? He's like, I don't know. But it's like, he was, <laughs> that's Winston Churchill, okay? You don't quite know how to make out this guy. Was he a Christian? I mean, how do you know this stuff? He believed in God. He believed the word of God was the word of God. That's what's interesting. But he's an odd duck, right? I mean, he's not the most normal guy that you would say, here's a model for your Christianity. So Walter Thompson was his bodyguard. There's a good picture of him. Winston went down on his knees to clutch a woman. So this is in the Blitz. They're out in amongst the rubble. To clutch a woman who still, un, who still conscious was being dug out. For a moment, they looked at one another. Winston with his coat and trousers splattered with mud, the woman covered from head to foot in dust. Then with a tremor in her voice, she thanked him and was taken away by friends. There goes greatness, said Winston. Tears were streaming down his face. There were many occasions when he would silently, without shame or embarrassment, weep for many minutes. Okay, do you, I don't know about you, but I admire that. There's something about it, especially when it's not appropriate for a British leader to do that. I don't know about you, but it feels very Christ-esque to come low and to dig in the rubble and to pull out and get the mud on you. And then to weep over what's happening in his hometown. I mean, this is like, uh, this is, a, this is a, quite the illustration. Five things Churchill did that inspired the world. So remember, this is what is happening at this exact time. After the first 40 days, we were alone with victorious Germany and Italy engaged in a mortal attack upon us with Soviet Russia, hostile neutral, actively aiding Hitler and Japan in unknowable menace. Welcome to the prime minister position, Mr. Churchill. This is one difficult task. So what is he going to do? Well, he didn't have fear in the crisis. Now, I don't know how someone walks through a crisis like this without fear. However, he, in a strange way, found delight in the challenge. Like, even when you, study Hitler, when you study Churchill, you recognize that he sort of relishes difficulty as if it is the opportunity that it's like all of that preparation is for this, and he knew it. And so as a result, counter to fear, he actually has a strange enthusiasm an excitement for the battle. So uh, Winston Churchill always uh, wanted to go out, like he wanted to stand on the, the rooftops, and he wanted to go, he wanted to, go to St. James Pub every uh, evening. Uh, so like I said, that's not necessarily what I would encourage. I don't know that he was going there to evangelize either. But, uh, but the, the Inspector Thompson was just like, sir, sir, <laughs> this is, I mean, if, you're out in the open. If, if you go down, it's like Great Britain goes down. And this is what he says. Uh, Churchill to Inspector Thompson in one of those moments where Inspector Thompson's like, sir, sir, sir. And then Churchill says to Inspector Thompson, I have someone else other than you looking out for me. And Inspector Thompson says, you mean Sergeant Davis, sir? And Churchill says, no. And then he pointed his finger upward toward heaven. I have a mission to perform, and that person intends to see that it is performed. <laughs> so... <laughs> fascinating character. Number two, he wouldn't flee for his life. You know what normal royalty and leadership does in a country is it moves itself from the center of the battle. So the French government, when Paris was being uh, moved upon by the Germans, where they, they moved south. They moved to a different city. They moved their center of government somewhere else. You know, during the Blitz, 
Winston Churchill would not leave London. What did that do to the Londoners? It caused the king and queen to not leave either. In other words, his leadership actually inspired the nation to say, yeah, let's stay right here and defy it. We don't care what you bring, Hitler. We're not going anywhere. We're not budging. And what that did to the nation was inspire it. He wouldn't flee for his life. Number three, he wouldn't walk, oh, I'm sorry, he would walk amongst the rubble every day and be with the people. So every day he would like take his walk amongst the people. And he would go out amongst the rubble and he would just talk with the people. And as a result, the people felt like he was their leader. He wasn't a distant man, he was their leader. And he knew what was going on with them. He shared in it. He was staying in London with them. He was going through the same bomb blasts. His own kitchen blew up. In other words, and then he, he's not going anywhere. He's staying right here. Number four, he would speak words of hope and victory constantly. Do you remember his symbol? He's always like, victory, victory. And this became the iconic symbol, which I, I guess before World War II meant something else, which wasn't pleasant. But Winston Churchill didn't know that. And so when he did it at first, everyone was like, should we be offended? <laughs> and then it turned into now what is known as the Winston Churchill victory sign. And that's, that was his symbol. He's like, we're going to win this, guys. We're going to win this. But, but they're powerful. We're going to win this. We are going to win. We are going to fight, and we will not stop fighting until we win. Could you imagine if you had that voice in your soul every day? And that's what Great Britain had, and that's what Great Britain needed. This voice is constant. Winston Churchill would not back down. So in a time when every other great British person is like whispering, going, how could we win this? I don't think we're going to win this. I don't think we're, he'd just rise up and say, we're going to win this. That's a leader for you right there. A leader that has not just faith, hope, courage, has vision to see impossible things. Because at that time, it was impossible. And number five, he did not waffle, bend, or compromise. He will not change the way that we're going to do this. No, he's not giving in to Hitler. No, he's not going to give in. He's not going to give any territory. No, he's not going to bend on this point. And all of his government officials are like, yeah, come on, we have to consider it at least that we could enter into an armistice. I mean, I don't know what they're going to ask from us, but it can't hurt to talk to them. We will not negotiate terms with Hitler. I mean, this is one tough guy. When you're, I mean... On the human side, when I go through something, say, at the Ellerslie level, which is pathetic next to what we're talking about here, right? But to me, it feels like I'm running a nation at times, right? I mean, to me, because I've never run a nation. To me, this is like an island, you know, that you know, has, is being attacked. And there are times when debate will come and for negotiating peace. How can I negotiate peace with my circumstances? Hmm. I could do this, I could do this, I could just flee to New Zealand, I could, I mean, there's all sorts of different things that will go through your mind. Same things that go through the mind of a nation in a time of great war with Hitler. And this man would not consider it, would not consider anything but victory. No, 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 don't even talk to me about it. And as a result, it created a culture in Great Britain that would not even mention defeat. At the beginning, it was. Everything was defeat. When he first took over, everyone was scared. But he began to create a culture. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. And when all the soldiers know that they're going to win, it's interesting, but they fight different. Then we're going to lose. We're going to lose. We're going to lose. 
So I know this is a very attractive guy. Uh, Harold Nicholson with his cigarette in his mouth. He was a junior member of the Churchill government, right? So two days prior uh, to the Dunkirk, uh, when, when the miracle of Dunkirk is going to unfold, of course, the public doesn't know what's happening. They just see that 70% of their military is going to die. And they know that the Hun, that's what they call the Germans, the Hun is coming across the channel and they're next. So two days prior, Harold Nicholson had his wife prepare suicide pills, convinced the Germans were going to win. They were convinced. This is like a member of the government is convinced that the Germans are going to win, so they're ready to commit suicide. Again, I'm not trying to propagate any of this behavior as healthy, right? And then literally two days later, when the miracle of Dunkirk is unfolding, what is happening inside the British people is going to transform them. And here's this guy who is living in absolute defeat and he says to his wife, my darling, how infectious courage is. I'm rendered far more in heart and confidence by such bravery. This housewife that I have a quote from, Nellie Last, uh, British middle-aged housewife, she was just the, the day before she was tired, you know, could hardly get out of bed. I mean, you could imagine what it would be like. Your, your, your sons are over there, you know, of the sons of your nation, even if it's not your own, is over there ready to die in, uh, in France, and you have no hope. She couldn't get out of bed, she had a backache. Now suddenly, I forgot I was a middle-aged woman that woke up tired and often with a backache. This story made me feel a part of something that was undying and never old. And suddenly she feels like this young girl. And she's like, bring it on, I'm ready to fight. This is a middle-aged housewife that is being inspired because someone will not back down. Winston Churchill, one of his famous speeches, at least a piece of it. We shall go on to the end. I can't do a Winston Churchill voice. I wish I could. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which, and even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. So this is his grandson. I'm convinced, whose name is Winston S. Churchill, the same as his granddad. I'm convinced that but for Winston Churchill... The Nazi swastika to this day would be flying over every capital city as far east as Moscow. It's quite a statement to ponder, except for one man rising up and leading in the dark. David Ben-Gurion, who is the first prime minister of Israel, he is actually in the Blitz. He's in London at that time, as almost like a refugee. And so this man is going to play a huge part in the formation of the nation of Israel, writing their initial constitution and various things. So this, this is like a key guy, their first prime minister. His admiration for Winston Churchill is through the roof because he was there watching his leadership. And what he's going to say to the Jews and the newly as they newly arrive in the homeland is he's going to basically say, I saw how the British people were led. I saw how they responded to the most extreme circumstances. We have a pattern, guys, for how we're going to live in this country. We're, I mean, they were, talk about being surrounded, being Israel, right? It's like, but he saw a pattern. Where do you see the pattern? In Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill lifted an entire nation out of the depths of humiliation and defeat. 
instilled in them the spiritual strength to stand against heavy odds. If not for Churchill, England would have gone down. That's quite a statement from a world leader. Leading in the dark, the Jesus model. Our model is truly not Winston Churchill. What you do is you take from Winston Churchill what you see in Christ. And where you don't see it in Christ, you just throw it out. Okay, guys, we're not going to hold on to anything we shouldn't. There's a lot of bones uh, in that chicken. Uh, And so we just need to be watchful of that. At the same time, there's some good meat on those bones when you look at that life. It's a very inspiring one to me. And, uh, but leading in the dark, the, the man I admire truly is Jesus. And even more so than Winston Churchill, I admire the men and women throughout history that have done what they've done in their leadership for the glory of Jesus, not just for the preservation of a nation. And so as a result, I look at that as the highest calling. The unfair challenge that Jesus inherited, the impossible leadership position that Jesus Christ was thrust into. Son, are you ready? Yes, Father. (laughs) He goes into the most untenable situation. I mean, there's no way that you can come out of this and a victor, right? Of course, we know he did, just like with Winston Churchill. We know the end, but do we remember how hard it was? Leadership challenge number one. The world is lost, enslaved to sin, and they don't even know it. Okay, that, that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, how are you supposed to save a group of people that don't even realize they need to be saved? Now, what's funny is the Jews know they need to be saved, but they think they need to be saved from Rome. They don't recognize their need for salvation from sin. Leadership challenge number two, the people entrusted with the word, the Jewish people, are sharply divided and more interested in debating than in repenting. They're interested in doctrinal accuracy. They're interested in divisions and and denominations amongst them and what makes them distinct. You know, the Pharisees are the group. Oh, the Sadducees. No, the Essenes. We have extreme chaos just like in Great Britain. I mean, it's a parallel. In every regard, we have a divided nation at an extreme level where they are in under occupation, where they are surrounded by an evil. And for the Jews, it was the Roman Empire, or you could say the power of sin. And, in, in, uh, and so what we have in, in uh, Winston Churchill's time is obviously Nazi Germany and division within. Leadership challenge number three, the people he was coming to save wanted him to save them from the power of Rome. But the power of Rome was not their biggest problem. But they didn't understand that. So his job of what he was saving them from was totally unappreciated. They're even the ones that kill him, ironically. Leadership challenge number four. The Roman government deemed him a threat, a political rabble-rouser. So it's one thing to be hunted by the religious leaders of the Jews, but the Romans felt he was a threat as well. And so as a result, you have, from both sides, you have the most powerful uh, government in the world, the Romans, and you have the Jews who, according to their law, are doing whatever they can to figure out how they can kill this guy. And so you, got, you have a bad setup uh, for this man to come into. This is what he's stepping into. Leadership challenge number five, the Jewish religious leaders deemed him a blaspheming, demon-controlled nutcase. Okay, that's not helping. How, you're trying to give a message to a generation and all the religious leaders are bad-mouthing it and contradicting it, saying it's not true and it's not biblical, and this guy's actually a blasphemer. A blasphemer is the most extreme statement you could give to someone speaking about God, right? 
And it's basically likening him to the devil. He is dwelt, indwelt by a devil. He's inhabited by a devil. He's empowered by a devil. Could you get anything more opposite of what Jesus is? Leadership challenge number six. Even those that did believe him, this is a, this is a challenge. Just think about this. Even those that did believe him were paralyzed with deafening social pressure to remain silent. Like you see Nicodemus, and he is recognizing that there is something special about Jesus, but hey, he's... He's a Pharisee. He knows what's going to happen to a Pharisee if a Pharisee actually sides with Jesus. No, I actually believe. He's out. He's out of the synagogue. And so people are getting kicked out of the synagogue if they believe. And there's no higher shame than to be kicked out of the synagogue. It's sort of like in our culture to be deemed a child abuser. Okay? And you're put on a list. You could actually go online and see in every town where the child abusers live. You're marked. Yep. No one wants that. Okay, so it's like, how about you just keep your mouth shut? So if you do believe that he is the Messiah, don't talk about it. The social pressure was intense. And this is the culture Jesus is coming into, and he's trying to lead these people out. Leadership challenge number seven. There was a traitor in his midst that was money hungry. Well, that doesn't help. Now, of course, we, we know that God is going to leverage every one of these things to his ends. Okay, we see that in hindsight, but just imagine if this is what you're inheriting. Okay, and you're like, oh, and one of your 12, Jesus is stepping out, and then the father says, oh, and by the way, one of the 12 is going to betray you, and he's, all he thinks about is money, so just be watchful, watch your back. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, thanks, father. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a tough setup. Leadership challenge number eight, his disciples were all bark and no bite. They were more likely to desert than stand firm. In other words, they talked a good talk. Peter's like, I will die with you, and Jesus is like, yeah, <laughs> Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. <laughs> he wasn't surrounded by those that were like him. He was surrounded by needy mm, rabble that were weak and were going to be scattered when the difficulty came and he was going to be left all alone. That's hard to lead in, guys. Leadership challenge number nine. The Jewish people were easily swayed. They could be conned to think that a Barabbas was more worthy of release than a loving Christ. Okay, how gullible are these people? Give us Barabbas. Come on. Barabbas, he's a murderer. Jesus, what has he done to you but healed you, loved you, been kind to you, fed you? Kill him, crucify him. And finally, leadership challenge number 10. Satan was licking his chops. He finally had the trap set and he was ready to pounce on the son of God and silence him. So we have a challenging situation, guys. Now, here's what I want you to recognize. You're going to face challenge. I know, it goes without saying yes, but I, I want to repeat. You are going to face challenge. The obstacles may seem impossible. Right? I mean, both of these. When I'm going through Winston Churchill, it is an impossible situation. However, this man defied it. He rose up, and what we're going to call, even though it's, it's a form of faith that might be a little different than the historic Christian faith. I mean, he believed in God. He believed God's word. He believed that God was faithful. I mean, he believed God would stand for that which was just. Isn't that interesting? His, his reasoning was more simple than ours, which is we believe in the word of God. We believe in the specific promises of God. But it's interesting to see how God did defend that which was just when someone stood up and did that which was right. How much more so does he want to stand for those of us that stand clearly upon his word for the glory of Jesus Christ, not just the glory of Great Britain? How much more so is God going to back us up when we step forward? The question is, 
how are we going to do our leading? Because we could lead in our own strength and determination, or we could lead in the power of the great leader himself. My advice to you is to climb by faith inside of the great leader and to be filled with the spirit of God of that great leader, and enable, which will enable you to rise up in the midst of any difficulty that you face, which I have a hunch you probably even have some today, that you need to defy, that you need to walk through with chin held high, focused on the, the fact that he is risen and he is enthroned. Defy your enemy. You are not called to be victims, you are called to be victors. And as a result, when we follow Jesus, though it would appear that we are losing at times. Jesus looked like he lost, okay? It didn't look like it. However, he was trouncing the enemy in what appeared to be his defeat was the enemy's actual defeat. And the same is true for us. So let's finish with Ephesians 4. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He is going to win in this battle just as we're going to see Winston Churchill pull off the impossible and defeat Hitler, okay? And of course, some of you could say, well, it was actually Joseph Stalin that marched into Berlin. Well, yeah, but if it wasn't for Winston Churchill, we would have never gotten to that point, right? And so we're going to see the defeat of an enemy, and it's, it's an improbable, impossible task. Jesus is going to pull off an improbable and impossible task, and he's not just going to crush the head of that serpent, but he is going to take all of those that are, have died in faith and he is going to grab a hold of them. He is going to descend, grab a hold of this army and march forth out of Hades, if you want to say it that way. March forth out of Abraham's bosom with his, uh, his reward. I mean, this is an incredible scene. And he gave gifts to men and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. By the way, this is all one sentence. It, to break that down is actually incredible to see how he leads. He is going to establish ministries. The same thing with you set up a government when, uh, when Winston Churchill is gonna be commissioned to set up a government, a national government which means a coalition government, which means it's not just one party, one view, but he is going to use what we could understand in the church as the body of Christ and its many giftings. And we see that Jesus is going to establish a government. He is going to give those of us what we need and he's going to say, follow me. But he gives us all the equipment. He's an incredible leader. And he's going to give it to us for the edifying of the body of Christ. You know, for for Winston Churchill, it was for the edifying of Great Britain. But we're, we're frying bigger fish here. We're at, for the edification of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is like, we, we need more punctuation in that because it is one long sentence. And yet, what we're seeing is the work of a leader. 
we are seeing a leader pull things together. And one of the most amazing things is if you had a room like this size, I mean, even this many people, to say, okay, guys, we all have a gift. We have a common task, and we all have gifts and abilities. As a leader, to call that out and to see it knit together and form into one body. It's like, that is, that's hard. And even to do this with this size of a group, what would I need as a leader to be able to do that effectively? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> I need the, the true leader to do it because I, how do I know everything about you to be able to be that discerning to know exactly how you fit into God's plan? I mean, that's, that's tricky unless God has given me insight, right? This is the work of the leader of leaders. And if you want to be a great influence of people, if you want to be great in your, in your future home as a parent, you need this. You need to be able to pull a Winston Churchill or to go higher a Jesus Christ to lead, to have that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to bring a body together. Father, we just ask that you would work wonders in our midst and build us up, that you would inspire us with these pictures, not just of history, but of you especially. Lord, we want to see you. We want to meditate upon you, not just men. Lord, we can be inspired by men's decisions, but Lord, only because it leads us to a closer understanding of who you are and what you desire to do in our lives and through our lives. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.